and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Um, my name is Bernardo Mita and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. And today we're going to be talking about Tchaikovsky and his Sixth Symphony. Um, so we're going to talk, about, of course, about his life and about uh, this composition. So, uh, Andrew, tell us something about Tchaikovsky. <laughs> well, Tchaikovsky was... Uh was born Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, that's his, his name in, in the good old Russian language. Um, <coughs> Peter, Pyotr. That's one syllable, Pyotr. Pyotr. Um, uh, no, he's, uh, he was born in May 7, 1840 in Votkinsk, Russia. Uh, Victor Borga used to make fun of this, uh, this fact when he would open up a history textbook and he would say, um, and Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, when he was a little boy, he did not play out in the streets of Votkinsk like all the other little children of Vodkins. Because when he was one month old, his parents moved to St. Petersburg. <laughs> that was just something he said to, to try and prove a point about music history being boring. But, but no, it's, uh, uh, he did, uh, he was born in Vodkins, Russia, and his father was a mine inspector and a metalworks manager, just a real blue-collar guy, uh, who had six children. Uh, Tchaikovsky was the second oldest of his five siblings. Of the yeah. six uh, offspring, but yeah. yeah, he um, he had a nice uh, early early life there in, in Saint Petersburg, sort of starting to get the the bite from music. Yeah, we've been talking about Saint, Peter Saint Petersburg a lot these past three weeks, and he comes back again today. <laughs> it's an important place musically. Yeah. So uh, when he, when Tchaikovsky was only five years old, uh, he began to take piano lessons, like we expect from all these composers, of course. And although he displayed an early passion for music, his parents hoped that he would grow up uh, to to work in the civil service. Not unlike Debussy. I mean, sorry, not unlike um, Stravinsky when he was he wanted to be. Uh, the parents wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, so at the age of ten, Tchaikovsky began attending the Imperial School of uh, Jurisprudence. Uh, a boarding school in St. Petersburg. Uh, his mother, Alexandra, died of cholera in 1854 when he was only 14 years old. Um, then in 1859, uh, uh, Tchaikovsky honored his parents' wishes by taking up the bureau clerk post in the Ministry of Justice, a post he would hold for four years, uh, during which time he became increasingly fascinated uh, with music. Yeah, so by the age of 21, he started taking lessons uh, with the Russian Musical Society, which was an early organization of music instruction in Russia, one of those uh, institutions founded by Artur Rubinstein. Uh, mm -hmm. Rubinstein was the guy that uh, founded a lot of music schools in, uh, in Russia, Ma namely the St. Petersburg Conservatory and the Moscow Conservatory, um, uh, which are basically the successors of the Russian Musical Society. But, but yeah, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky took lessons there with the Russian Musical Society for a while. A few months later, he started studying at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, um, at one of those his conservator, really important conservatory that uh, Rubinstein and others got started. Uh, he became one of the first composition students to study there. Uh, and so he was there for a while. He gave lessons to other students. Um, by the age of 23, uh, which is around 1863, he became a professor of harmony at the Moscow Conservatory. Yeah, and so I think that's the main difference that when we talk about the Russian composers, right, that he's like the, the very uh, educated, the well-educated formal composer, unlike, of course, the five who are trying to be against all those formal things. 
Tchaikovsky's work was first publicly performed in 1865 uh, with Johann Strauss the Younger uh, conducting Tchaikovsky's characteristic dances at uh, uh, Pavlov's uh, concert. Uh, in 1868, Tchaikovsky's first symphony was well received when it was publicly performed in Moscow. Uh, and the following year, his first opera, the Voyevoda, uh, made its way to the stage with little fanfare. Yeah, I mean, Voyevoda was not a, not very much of a success. In fact, uh, Tchaikovsky despised the work after the fact. Uh, he, he destroyed the full score of it. It wasn't until the 21st century, it wasn't until the 20th century that, uh, <laughs> that Soviet musicians began to reconstruct his, uh, his first opera, Voyevoda, from parts rather than from the full score. Uh, even today, it's very, very obscure, crazy obscure. Uh, mm -hmm. No one performs it. In fact, I have yet to find a recording. I'm sure there are recordings, but I've yet to see one. Yeah. Uh, so, Tchaikovsky scrapped the Voyevoda, which he dismantled and borrowed from to make his next opera, the Oprichnik, uh, which actually did have some success at its premiere at the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. Uh, this was in 1874. Uh, the work was set to his own libretto and was about the Oprichniks, uh, these political secret police of Ivan the Terrible's court in around the 1560s. Uh, really neat little opera about a political situation. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was his third opera. There's a middle opera before that one that was less uh, less important. But uh, his his second symphony is around the same time, 1874. Uh, it's also got very popular. Um, he wrote a second opera. He wrote another opera in 1874 called Vakula the Smith, which was not as well received as was uh, the Oprichnik. Uh, this was not too big of a deal since his first piano concerto in B-flat minor was extraordinarily popular for the time. So he was getting a lot of good fame from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've played the second symphony um, maybe 10 years ago, the last time I played it. Um, and that's a very, very Russian, Russian symphony. Uh, it's got a lot of uh, Russian themes in there. Um, so. Uh, acclaim came readily for Tchaikovsky in 1875 with his composition, uh, his, his, his symphony number no. three in D major. Uh, at the end of that year, uh, the composer embarked on a tour of Europe, uh, and also, and then in 1876, he completed the ballet uh, Swan Lake as well as the, as the fantasy uh, Francesca da Rimini, which is a symphonic poem. It's a very uh, th these two works, uh, Swan Lake and Fran Francesca da Rimini, are very very important works that apparently he composed in just uh, in just one year, basically, in the course of one year. Yeah, so in 1878, Tchaikovsky resigned from the Moscow Conservatory so he could spend more time composing music, um, thanks to a little help from a, from a very wealthy friend, who we'll talk about in a bit. Mm -hmm. um, starting around this time, he became very prolific from all the extra time he had to devote to composition. Uh, so um, this is where he composes most of his works, but in the course of his entire lifetime, he composed about 169 pieces, including seven symphonies, 11 operas, 11 concerti, uh, several ballets, many songs, cantatas. Uh, his best-known work is probably the 1890 ballet, The Nutcracker, though his 1892 ballet, The Sleeping Beauty, is also quite well known. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so a little bit about his personal life. Um, he's struggling with societal pressures um, to repress his homosexuality. In, oh, in case we haven't said it before, he was uh, homosexual. Um, so in um, 
1877, Tchaikovsky married a young uh, music student named Antonina Mil Mil Miliukova. <laughs> uh, this marriage was very catastrophic, um, with Tchaikovsky abandoning his wife within weeks of the wedding uh, during a, a nervous breakdown. He unsuccessfully attempted to, co to commit suicide and eventually fled um, abroad. So this, this marriage was, um, I mean, he, I don't think he told her that, that they weren't going to consummate the marriage. Uh, and then uh, when the time came, I think, I don't think she was very happy with that. It was, it was just very, very problematic. <laughs> you know, sexuality can be very fluid. Uh, about 11 years before they had gotten married, Tchaikovsky had fallen deeply in love with a Belgian soprano named Desiree Artaud. Uh, the, the relationship ended when she did not want to give up the stage or settle in Russia. Um, but, but at the time, he was very much infatuated with her, and, and she was infatuated with him. They were very much into each other. Um, you know, sexuality is one of those fluid things. Uh, he, he himself, um, most biographers tend to agree these days that he was indeed a, a gay man. He's a person who, um, who preferred men to women. Uh, but uh, afterwards, uh, he did marry Milyukova and had a miserable time of it, of course, including suffering from writer's block, uh, which is not great for a composer to suffer from. Uh, she was apparently not that pleasant of a wife either. They weren't very well matched. Um, I, I understand that she uh, attempted, or she um, uh, threatened suicide sometimes to keep him around, which obviously didn't last very long because he was only with her for about a month and a half. Um, but once he left her, he received financial help from a very wealthy patron by the name of Nadezhda von Meck. Uh, she was the widow of a railway magnate. Mm -hmm. uh, his ability to resign from the Moscow Conservatory was due to her financial help. She was very, very well off. Uh, she provided him a monthly allowance, but also, weirdly enough, stipulated that they would never meet. Yeah. So that was uh, just adding a little extra distance and mystery to the, the life that is Tchaikovsky. Yeah, this relationship is so fascinating. I mean, there's books written only about this one relationship. Um, and uh, this, this relationship starts, you know, business-like, but then it becomes more and more personal as the time goes on. Uh, of course, Symphony Number no. 4 um, is it's written, dedicated to, to, um, to Von Meck. Uh, and he wrote, in one of his letters, he wrote to her, he wrote actually a program uh, of Symphony Number no. 4 only to her. I mean, nobody, nobody else know, knew about this program until after the letters were, you know, released. Um, and this program, he, he didn't tell anybody about this program because he wanted people to, you know, enjoy his music for the music and not actually for the, for the program. Um, and of course, Symphony, um, sorry. Um, and, and he did also in one of his letters t tell her that he was contemplating suicide, but he decided not to do it because of music. Kind of like with Beethoven's um, Heiligenstadt, um, yeah, Testament. So there is some similarities there as well. So um, Tchaikovsky died in Saint Petersburg on November 6, 1893. Uh, while the cause of his death uh, was officially declared as cholera, some of his biographers believe that he committed suicide after humiliation of a sex uh, scandal trial. However, only oral and not written documentation exists to support this theory. And I mean, we've been, I think when, when I took the romantic history class, we talked about this, and I think he, it, was, it was believed that he drank some bad water or something like that. Yeah, they say he drank some bad water, and they also say he was uh, under a court of honor to do these kinds of things. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we talk about the symphony, but his, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he did have, uh, no one really knows how he died to this day. We, we, we have no 
very firm conception of just exactly how he died. Because it seems unlikely that during a cholera epidemic where everyone is boiling water or dying, that yeah. he would go ahead and just drink some water. Yeah. <laughs> but he could have died of anything. I mean, he's um, he suffered from alcoholism and used lots of... No, he didn't suffer from alcoholism too much. I mean, he, he drank lots of booze and smoked yeah. lots of tobacco. I don't know how much that had to do with anything. But, yeah. Um, but yeah. So... Today's uh, work that we're looking at is his sixth symphony, the, the Pathétique Symphony, which is the, uh, probably his best-known symphony. He, he wrote it right there at the end of his life. Uh, so the, the story of this symphony is pretty deeply intertwined with the stories of his death. Uh, it's a hugely popular work. So, and Tchaikovsky premiered this work only nine days before his own death. Mm -hmm. The conductor, Leopold Stokowski, who, by the way, is the guy who got the no-clapping-between-movements experiment going on in 1928 or so, wrote yeah, this. Yeah, you love, you love this guy, don't you? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sure he did some good things, but good enough. The no-clapping thing is unforgivable. <laughs> but he wrote this about the symphony, quote, His musical utterance comes directly from the heart and is a spontaneous expression of his innermost feeling. It is, it is as sincere as if it were written with his blood, unquote. A little, little over the top from Mr. Stokowski, but he, he was a romantic <laughs> man. He couldn't resist himself. Uh, Tchaikovsky's style here is his ultimate musical language, uh, ultimate in the sense of it being his final musical language, uh, which, uh, which seems to mix Slavic sensibilities with French style and orchestration. Yeah, that mixing of, of French and Slavic is something that we can also hear in his 1812 overture, of course. Um, so Tchaikovsky's final work, this one, the Symphony No. 6 in B minor, um, is dubbed by his brother Modeste uh, with the composer's approval as pathet pathetic, uh, in the sense of pathos and not actually pathetic. Uh, this word patheticheskaya, which actually means um, passionate or emotional, but it, um, this word also reflects a little bit of um, concurrent suffering. So there is there is still like, I mean this, this translation to pathetic is still debated a little bit. Uh, so, uh, Robert Simpson uh, aptly observed, uh, no other work was uh, has survived so many critical burials. Um, so, it's, it's pop this, pop this work's popular appeal uh, is indeed immortal, displaying, uh, as with all Tchaikovsky's great works, uh, a complex texturing of emotion, sorrow always with hope, and happiness marked with a foreboding of despair. Uh, so indeed, this symphony can be seen as a reflection and culmination of the composer's deeply discordant life, some of the details of which have only recently began to emerge uh, of Tchaikovsky's life. Yeah, uh, as I said before, Tchaikovsky died nine days after the premiere during an epidemic of cholera. Now, this piece is deeply intertwined with all the sensationalist stories surrounding his death that are still being proposed today. Uh, Tchaikovsky reportedly proclaimed the Pathétique to be his finest achievement and was quite proud and satisfied with it, which of course would seem to make suicide relatively unlikely. Uh, there was a theory proposed that he, he was murdered in a, as, as a sentence in some kind of court of honor due to his latent sexual attraction in men. Uh, this idea comes from a musicologist named Alexandra Orlova, who in 1980 published a theory proposing that he died by suicide, carried out a, uh, carrying out a sentence passed by a court of honor of his classmates at the School of Jurisprudence. Tchaikovsky's sexual advances to a young man of high birth were about to be made public, and death was nobler than bringing dishonor upon the school. Uh, this idea is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, very untenable. It just 
literally appeared in 1980 and people really clung to it, but there was just no strong evidence to support it. Uh, it has very few, very little evidence and sounds really way too sensationalist to be true. Though if, I mean, yeah. there is still a, a very faint chance that it could be true, but it seems very unlikely. Mm. Uh, in any case, this, this particular symphony does remain the kind of final expression of Tchaikovsky's musical language. Yeah, so um, Tchaikovsky, as we said before, he was a lifelong homosexual in a very religious society in which such behavior was um, harshly condemned. Um, and Modeste, his brother, uh, in, in his uh, thorough three-volume biography, um, he doesn't mention a hint of sexuality uh, at all. Uh, so Tchaikovsky did live in this perpetual dread of disclosure and relied upon the dis um, discretion of a huge number of people, including a myriad uh, of male students to whom he had been attracted. So yes, a lot of people actually knew that he was actually a homosexual, but um, and I mean people in the conservatory were aware of this. But and I am and he was probably scared that people were you know would disclose to too many people. It's kind of ironic that the love life of the composer, best known for his ardently romantic music, was such a thorough mess. Uh, he had only two significant relationships with women. Uh, both began at the age of 37 and were quite bizarre. Um, yep. So yeah, the Taruskin, Richard Taruskin, uh, one of our rock stars in musicology, uh, he notes that. Uh, quote, suicide theories were much stimulated by the Sixth Symphony, which was first performed under the composer's baton only nine days before his demise. With its lugubrious finale, ending Morendo, dying away, its brief but conspicuous allusion to the orthodox requiem liturgy in the first movement, and above all its easily misread subtitle, <clears throat> when the symphony was done again, a, uh, done again a couple of weeks later, in memoriam and with the subtitle in place, everyone listened hard for portents, and that is how the symphony became a transparent suicide note. Uh, it's just this, this posthumous reception. So depression was the first diagnosis. Homosexual tragedy came later. Uh, <laughs> this is still Taruskin talking. Uh, David Brown describes the idea of the Sixth Symphony as some sort of suicide note as patent nonsense. Uh, Alexander Poznansky writes, Since the arrival of the Court of Honor theory in the West, performances of Tchaikovsky's last symphony are almost invariably accompanied by annotations treating it as a testimony of homosexual martyrdom. Other scholars, including Michael Paul Smith, include that, that with or without the supposed Court of Honor sentence, there is no way that Tchaikovsky could have known the time of his own death when composing his last masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what is it? A lot of funny, a lot of not funny, a lot of, uh, Strange, sensationalist stories that surround not only this symphony but the uh, but his uh, death. His life, his yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the first movement uh, adheres to the traditional symphonic sonata form, but um, you'll barely notice as with Tchaikovsky's uh, potent tone poems, uh, the interplay of sharp, angular commotion and lush, sensual longing attains a compelling but uneasy balance between uh, the comfort of scalar passage work and the aching tension of figures based on the ambiguous interval of fourth. That was a long, long set. <laughs> so yeah, there is a lot of interplay here um, between uh, emotions and things like that. Um, so the drama surge at the midpoint, uh, Tchaikovsky uh, throws down the volume to an unprecedented notation of P P P P P P. <laughs> super super ultra, I guess, pianissimo. pianissimo. There you go. <laughs> to prepare for a, a starting full uh, outburst there. Yeah, so that was the first movement, which is very long, very beautiful, very awesome. Uh, 
the second movement is a kind, a kind of limping waltz, uh, which has a melody that's very smooth. It's so smooth it's hard to notice that every other beat group is missing a beat. It's in 5-4 time. Uh, it could be that the 5-4 is a very subtle nod to the folk tunes of Russia, which often use 5-4 as a standard time signature, but in any case, he just uses 5-4 in a very natural, very clear way that uh, seems to... Uh, it seems just like a fresh approach to a waltz, to have that missing beat every uh, other beat group. Mm -hmm. uh, typical of Tchaikovsky, it pulsates with doubt, brimming with grace, yet constantly off-balance. It just has this, this, this character of... Uh, of of gracefulness while at the same time missing that little beat. Yeah. Uh, missing yeah. that one little third of a beat. One <laughs> under, two and one under, two and that's what you expect to yeah. hear in a 5 4. Da, mm. da, 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 da. Uh, yeah. It's not quite how the music goes, but you can check obviously. But typically a waltz would just be in, in just a nice clean one uh, in triple time. That's what we expect in a waltz. But for the second movement here, it's, it's in 5 4 time. So next comes a vivid march that builds repeatedly over a tense uh, uh, set of chattering strings, uh, which eventually gets to this brass-fueled climax uh, that is just very, very thrilling. So, so much thrilling, uh, so thrilling that audiences even today typically applaud despite Stokowski's little no clapping experiment <laughs> that so many concerts still use today. Yes, definitely. Like this, this symphony, most people clap between the third and fourth movement. Then at the actual end of the of the piece, people wait at the end of the piece to clap. But everybody always claps at the end of the fourth movement. It's almost kind of like a tradition now. When it happens so much. <laughs> like standing in the Hallelujah chorus, just used to. Exactly, it's, it, and it's because I it, mean that this third movement is so awesomely that people just want to clap, and everybody does all the time. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I mean that's just the way it always had been. I mean. The expectation, even in Tchaikovsky's day, is that people clap between movements. If it's good, if they clap, if the music's good, basically. Yeah. It's a concert, not a recording session. <laughs> they want it to be a lively experience. So if there's lots of hammer blows, mag majesty everywhere, you're going to applaud. Yeah. But uh, this symphony isn't over yet. Uh, instead, in his, in his most visionary touch of all, Tchaikovsky concludes with a very slow movement that um, thrashes and seeds uh, with stressful emotion before finally fading away into restless exhaustion. Uh, in the words of composers uh, Arnold, Arnold Schoenberg, uh, the finale starts with a cry and ends with a moan. Uh, of all the worst innovations, surely this was the most influential. Um, uh, not many symphonies end uh, in this kind of um, in this kind of slow um, slow movement. Um, Haydn concluded his uh, 1772 symphony number no. 45, the farewell farewell uh, with a slow movement. Um, but um, and also uh, Brahms uh, 1877 symphony, the no his number no. three has a slow ending as well. Um, but it's, uh, Brahms finale is more calm. Um, um, and it, it's also hard to imagine the unresolved angst of Mahler 6 and 9th, uh, nor indeed the emotional void of 12-tone or electronic music without Tchaikovsky's bold precedent. So this, I mean, the ending of this of this symphony is incredible. It's so, so, man, it's like heart-wrenching there. It's really, really awesome. Um, romantic stuff. Uh, very, of course, yes, of course. I mean, uh, this is a very romantic composer, not only in his music, but also in the way that he talked, the way that he lived. Uh, one, one thing that he did with, uh, with von Meck 
was that you know he they never they agreed not to uh, to meet each other but sometimes they were in the same city together I think they were in Florence together together at one point and um, so she would tell him when she would she was going to go out in the streets so that he, he wouldn't go out and he would always close the blinds so that they never actually met it was so I mean this kind of idea of being so you know extreme in a lot of things you know very romantic so all in all this uh, the symphony affirms Tchaikovsky's approach to the genre it's a the first movement uh, has a compositional density that's rooted in classical form. Uh, the mm -hmm. inner movements are more involved with beauty than with philosophy, you know, simple mm -hmm. pattern. And then, yeah. and then this finale is striking, it's, this continuous richness of connotation, melody, uh, uh, gesture, sonority. And when, we, when, I, when I say connotation, I, I, we mentioned earlier that, that Tchaikovsky frequently had programs for his music. Uh, this piece does not have a surviving program, but uh, in in 1893, he did acknowledge the existence of a program in the Sixth Symphony to a guy by the name of Bob Davidoff, uh, but claimed that it would remain an enigma. Uh, <laughs> so, whether a tease or a challenge, his remark has made this symphony ex especially susceptible to interpretation, from the allusion to Beethoven's Sonata Pathétique in its opening bars to the Lamento figure at the basis at the basis of the finale. Uh, it's just uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh, speculation about what each little bit of this music means. It's, it's hard to really say. And Tchaikovsky wanted to keep it open. He liked yeah. for people. He liked to write programs. A lot of his music does have some sense of connotation, but mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't make it explicit like he had before in Tunadesh de Mech or his other composers had done, uh, like Berlioz and the Symphonie Fantastique, of writing out a program to be followed as you're listening to it. Yeah, it's very, very much more ambiguous. Yeah. I love this symphony. This is also one of my favorite symphonies of all time. Uh, I played this one for the first time when I was 17, I think. Um, and man, this, this symphony almost changed my life, man. It's so good, so good. I mean, and um, I don't know, if you like a little bit of sappy here and there, this is a good, good symphony for you. <laughs> um, are we good? I think we're good. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Symphony Podcast, of course. Um, you can uh, find us on iTunes or on YouTube. The YouTube links, like, we, like the YouTube video, like we said before, has uh, some images here and there and some links that you can click on and, and maybe learn some more about other things. Um, uh, well, if you have any concerns or questions, you can email us at symphonypodcast.gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening.